Book Tenth, Chapter Two of the Ambassadors by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When one morning within the week he perceived the whole thing to be really at last upon him, Strether's immediate feeling was all relief. He had known this morning that something was about to happen, known it in a moment, by Waymarsh's manner, when Waymarsh appeared before him during his brief consumption of coffee and a roll in the small, slippery salle à manger so associated with rich rumination. Strether had taken there of late various lonely and absent-minded meals. He communed there, even at the end of June, with a suspected chill, the air of old shivers mixed with old savours, the air in which so many of his impressions had perversely matured, the place, meanwhile, renewing its message to him by the very circumstance of his singular state. He now sat there, for the most part, to sigh softly, while he vaguely tilted his carafe, over the vision of how much better Waymarsh was occupied. That was really his success, by the common measure, to have led this companion so on and on. He remembered how at first there had been scarce a squatting-place he could beguile him into passing, the actual outcome of which at last was that there was scarce one that could arrest him in his rush. His rush, as Strether vividly and amusedly figured it, continued to be all with Sarah, and contained perhaps moreover the word of the whole enigma, whipping up in its fine, full-flavoured froth, the very principle, for good or for ill, of his own, of Strether's destiny. It might, after all, to the end, only be that they had united to save him, and indeed, so far as Waymarsh was concerned, that had to be the spring of action. Strether was glad at all events, in connection with the case, that the saving he required was not more scant. So constituted a luxury was it in certain lights, just to lurk there out of the full glare. He had moments of quite seriously wondering whether Waymarsh wouldn't, in fact, thanks to old friendship and a conceivable indulgence, make about as good terms for him as he might make for himself. They wouldn't be the same terms, of course, but they might have the advantage that he himself probably should be able to make none at all. He was never in the morning very late, but Waymarsh had already been out, and after a peep into the dim refectory he presented himself with much less than usual of his large looseness. He had made sure, through the expanse of glass exposed to the court, that they would be alone, and there was now in fact that about him that pretty well took up the room. He was dressed in the garments of summer, and save that his white waistcoat was redundant and bulging, these things favoured, they determined, his expression. He wore a straw hat such as his friend hadn't yet seen in Paris, and he showed a buttonhole freshly adorned with a magnificent rose. Strether read on the instant his story, how, astir for the previous hour, the sprinkled newness of the day, so pleasant at that season in Paris, he was fairly panting with the pulse of adventure, and had been with Mrs. Pocock, unmistakably, to the Marché aux Fleurs. Strether really knew in this vision of him a joy that was akin to envy. So reversed as he stood there did their old position seem, so comparatively doleful now showed, by the sharp turn of the wheel, the posture of the pilgrim from Woollett. He wondered, this pilgrim, if he had originally looked to Waymarsh so brave and well, so remarkably launched, as it was at present the latter's privilege to appear. 
He recalled that his friend had remarked to him, even at Chester, that his aspect belied his plea of prostration. But there certainly couldn't have been, for an issue, an aspect less concerned than Waymarsh's with the menace of decay. Strether had, at any rate, never resembled a southern planter of the great days, which was the image picturesquely suggested by the happy relation between the fuliginous face and the wide Panama of his visitor. This type, it further amused him to guess, had been, on Waymarsh's part, the object of Sarah's care. He was convinced that her taste had not been a stranger to the conception and purchase of the hat, any more than her fine fingers had been guiltless of the bestowal of the rose. It came to him in the current of thought, as things so oddly did come, that he had never risen with the lark to attend a brilliant woman to the Marché aux Fleurs. This could be fastened on him in connection neither with Miss Gostrey nor with Madame de Vionnet. The practice of getting up early for adventures could indeed in no manner be fastened on him. It came to him, in fact, that just here was his usual case. He was forever missing things through his general genius for missing them, while others were forever picking them up through a contrary bent. And it was others who looked abstemious, and he who looked greedy. It was he, somehow, who finally paid, and it was others who mainly partook. Yes, he should go to the scaffold yet, for he wouldn't know quite whom. He almost, for that matter, felt on the scaffold now, and really quite enjoying it. It worked out as because he was anxious there. It worked out as for this reason that Waymarsh was so blooming. It was his trip for health, for a change, that proved the success, which was just what Strether, planning and exerting himself, had desired it should be. That truth already sat full-blown on his companion's lips, benevolence breathed from them as with the warmth of active exercise, and also a little as with the bustle of haste. Mrs. Pocock, whom I left a quarter of an hour ago at her hotel, has asked me to mention to you that she would like to find you at home here in about another hour. She wants to see you, she has something to say, or considers, I believe, that you may have so that I asked her myself why she shouldn't come right round. She hasn't been round yet to see our place, and I took upon myself to say that I was sure you'd be glad to have her. The things, therefore, you see, to keep right here till she comes. The announcement was sociably, even though, after Waymarth's want, somewhat solemnly made. But Strether quickly felt other things in it than these light features. It was the first approach from that quarter to admitted consciousness. It quickened his pulse, it simply meant at last that he should have but himself to thank if he didn't know where he was. He had finished his breakfast, he pushed it away, and was on his feet. There were plenty of elements of surprise, but only one of doubt. The things for you to keep here, too? Waymarsh had been slightly ambiguous. He wasn't ambiguous, however, after this inquiry and Strether's understanding had probably never before opened so wide and effective a mouth as it was to open during the next five minutes. It was no part of his friend's wish, as appeared, to help to receive Mrs. Pocock. He quite understood the spirit in which she was to present herself, but his connection with her visit was limited to his having, well, as he might say, perhaps a little promoted it. He had thought, and had let her know it, that Strether possibly would think she might have been round before. At any rate, as turned out, she had been wanting herself quite a while to come. 
I told her, said Waymarsh, that it would have been a bright idea if she had only carried it out before. Strether pronounced it so bright as to be almost dazzling. But why hasn't she carried it out before? She has seen me every day. She had only to name her hour. I've been waiting and waiting. Well, I told her you had, and she has been waiting too. It was, in the oddest way in the world, on the showing of this tone, a genial, new, pressing, coaxing Waymarsh, a Waymarsh conscious with a different consciousness from any he had yet betrayed, and actually rendered by it almost insinuating. He lacked only time for full persuasion, and Strether was to see in a moment why. Meantime, however, our friend perceived, he was announcing a step of some magnanimity on Mrs. Pocock's part so that he could deprecate a sharp question. It was his own high purpose, in fact, to have smoothed sharp questions to rest. He looked his old comrade very straight in the eyes, and he had never conveyed to him in so mute a manner so much kind confidence and so much good advice. Everything that was between them was again in his face, but matured and shelved and finally disposed of. At any rate, he added, she's coming now. Considering how many pieces had to fit themselves, it all fell, in Strether's brain, into a close, rapid order. He saw on the spot what had happened, and what probably would yet, and it was all funny enough. It was perhaps just this freedom of appreciation that wound him up to his flare of high spirits. What is she coming for? To kill me? She's coming to be very, very kind to you, and you must let me say that I greatly hope you'll not be less so to herself. This was spoken by Waymarsh with much gravity of admonition, and as Strether stood there he knew he had but to make a movement to take the attitude of a man gracefully receiving a present. The present was that of the opportunity dear old Waymarsh had flattered himself he had divined in him the slight soreness of not having yet thoroughly enjoyed. So he had brought it to him thus, as on a little silver breakfast-tray, familiarly, though delicately, without oppressive pomp, and he was to bend and smile and acknowledge, was to take and use and be grateful. He was not, that was the beauty of it, to be asked to deflect too much from his dignity. No wonder the old boy bloomed in this bland air of his own distillation. Strether felt for a moment as if Sarah were actually walking up and down outside. Wasn't she hanging about the porte-cochere, while her friend thus summarily opened a way? Strether would meet her but to take it, and everything would be for the best in the best of possible worlds. He had never so much known what any one meant as, in the light of this demonstration, he knew what Mrs. Newsome did. It had reached Waymarsh from Sarah, but it had reached Sarah from her mother, and there was no break in the chain by which it reached him. Has anything particular happened, he asked after a minute, so suddenly to determine her? Has she heard anything unexpected from home? Waymarsh on this, it seemed to him, looked at him harder than ever. Unexpected? He had a brief hesitation. Then, however, he was firm. We're leaving Paris. Leaving? That is sudden. Waymarsh showed a different opinion. Less so than it may seem, the purpose of Mrs. Pocock's visit is to explain to you, in fact, that it's not. Strether didn't know at all if he had really an advantage, anything that would practically count as one, but he enjoyed for the moment, as for the first time in his life, the sense of so carrying it off. 
He wondered, it was amusing, if he felt as the impudent feel. I shall take great pleasure, I assure you, in any explanation. I shall be delighted to receive Sarah. The sombre glow just darkened in his comrade's eyes, but he was struck with the way it died out again. It was too mixed with another consciousness. It was too smothered, as might be said, in flowers. He really for the time regretted it. Poor dear old sombre glow! Something straight and simple, something heavy and empty, had been eclipsed in its company, something by which he had best known his friend. Waymarsh wouldn't be his friend somehow, without the occasional ornament of the sacred rage, and the right to the sacred rage, inestimably precious for Strether's charity, he also seemed in a manner, and at Mrs. Pocock's elbow, to have forfeited. Strether remembered the occasion early in their stay, when on that very spot he had come out with his earnest, his ominous, quit it, and so remembering felt it hang by a hair that he didn't himself now utter the same note. Waymarsh was having a good time. This was the truth that was embarrassing for him, and he was having it then and there, he was having it in Europe. He was having it under the very protection of circumstances of which he didn't in the least approve, all of which placed him in a false position with no issue possible, none at least by the grand manner. It was practically in the manner of any one, it was all but in poor Strether's own, that instead of taking anything up, he merely made the most of having to be himself explanatory. I'm not leaving for the United States direct. Mr. and Mrs. Pocock and Miss Mamie are thinking of a little trip before their own return, and we've been talking for some days past of our joining forces. We've settled it that we do join, and that we sail together the end of next month, but we start to-morrow for Switzerland. Mrs. Pocock wants some scenery. She hasn't had much yet. He was brave in his way, too, keeping nothing back confessing all there was, and only leaving Strether to make certain connections. Is what Mrs. Newsome had cabled her daughter an injunction to break off short? The grand manner, indeed, at this just raised its head a little. I know nothing about Mrs. Newsome's cables. Their eyes met on it with some intensity, during the few seconds of which something happened quite out of proportion to the time. It happened that Strether, looking thus at his friend, didn't take his answer for truth, and that something more again occurred in consequence of that. Yes, Waymarsh just did know about Mrs. Newsome's cables. To what other end than that had they dined together at Bignon's? Strether almost felt for the instant that it was to Mrs. Newsome herself the dinner had been given, and for that matter quite felt how she must have known about it, and, as he might think, protected and consecrated it. He had a quick blurred view of daily cables, questions, answers, signals. Clear enough was his vision of the expense, that when so wound up the lady at home was prepared to incur. Vivid not less was his memory of what, during his long observation of her, some of her attainments of that high pitch had cost her. Distinctly she was at the highest now, and Waymarsh, who imagined himself an independent performer, was really forcing his fine old natural voice an overstrained accompanist. The whole reference of his errand seemed to mark her for Strether as by this time consentingly familiar to him, and nothing yet had so despoiled her of a special shade of consideration. "'You don't know,' he asked, "'whether Sarah has been directed from home to try me on the matter of my also going to Switzerland?' 
"'I know,' said Waymarsh, as manfully as possible, "'nothing whatever about her private affairs, though I believe her to be acting in conformity with things that have my highest respect.' It was as manful as possible, but it was still the false note, as it had to be to convey so sorry a statement. He knew everything, Strether more and more felt, that he thus disclaimed, and his little punishment was just in this doom to a second fib. What falser position, given the man, could the most vindictive mind impose? He ended by squeezing through a passage in which three months before he would certainly have stuck fast. Mrs. Pocock will probably be ready herself to answer any inquiry you may put to her, but, he continued, but, he faltered on it. But what? Don't put her too many? Waymarsh looked large, but the harm was done. He couldn't, do what he would, help looking rosy. Don't do anything you'll be sorry for. It was an attenuation, Strether guessed, of something else that had been on his lips. It was a sudden drop to directness, and was thereby the voice of sincerity. He had fallen to the supplicating note, and that immediately, for our friend, made a difference and reinstated him. They were in communication as they had been that first morning in Sarah's salon, and in her presence in Madame de Vionnet's, and the same recognition of a great good will was again, after all, possible. Only the amount of response Waymarsh had then taken for granted was doubled, decoupled now. This came out when he presently said, "'Of course I needn't assure you I hope you'll come with us.' Then it was that his implications and expectations loomed up for Strether as almost pathetically gross. The latter patted his shoulder while he thanked him, giving him the go-by to the question of joining the Pococks. He expressed the joy he felt at seeing him go forth again, so brave and free, and he, in fact, almost took leave of him on the spot. I shall see you again, of course, before you go, but I'm meanwhile much obliged to you for arranging so conveniently for what you've told me. I shall walk up and down in the court there, dear little old court, which we've each bepaced so this last couple of months, to the tune of our flights and our drops, our hesitations and our plunges. I shall hang about there all impatience and excitement. Please let Sarah know, till she graciously presents herself. Leave me with her without fear, he laughed. I assure you I shan't hurt her. I don't think either she'll hurt me. I'm in a situation in which damage was some time ago discounted. Besides, that isn't what worries you. But don't, don't explain. We're all right as we are, which was the degree of success our adventure was pledged to for each of us. We weren't, it seemed, all right as we were before, and we've got over the ground, all things considered, quickly. I hope you'll have a lovely time in the Alps." Waymarsh fairly looked up at him as from the foot of them. I don't know as I ought really to go. It was the conscience of Milrose, and the very voice of Milrose, but, oh, it was feeble and flat. Strether suddenly felt quite ashamed for him. He breathed a greater boldness. Let yourself, on the contrary, go, in all agreeable directions. These are precious hours. At our age they mayn't recur. Don't have it to say to yourself at Milrose next winter that you hadn't courage for them. And then, as his comrade queerly stared, live up to Mrs. Pocock. Live up to her? You're a great help to her. Waymarsh looked at it as at one of the uncomfortable things that were certainly true, and that it was yet ironical to say. It's more then than you are. 
That's exactly your own chance and advantage. Besides, said Strether, I do in my own way contribute. I know what I'm about. Waymarsh had kept on his great Panama, and as he now stood nearer the door, his last look beneath the shade of it had turned again to darkness and warning. So do I. See here, Strether. I know what you're going to say. Quit this? Quit this. But it lacked its old intensity. Nothing of it remained. It went out of the room with him. End of Book Tenth, Chapter Two